I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we'll be looking in verses 10 through 13 this morning as we continue in our series called Living Generously. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. Let's pray now and ask for the Lord's help as we look into his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its sufficiency. Help us, Lord, now by your Holy Spirit to understand it and to rightly apply it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you could say with confidence that you are genuinely content with everything in your life today? How many of you could say that you are genuinely content with everything in your life today? Perhaps we could do it this way. We could begin to expose your levels of contentment maybe by seeing how many of you still have an iPhone 3 or a flip phone. Rick Benefield, yeah. And all you Galaxy Samsung people out there who are still trying to keep up in your sanctification, you're up to seven now and iPhones are still at six and so don't be the ones complaining about the new, new ones coming out. In all seriousness, when it comes to the issue of contentment, this is an area where all of us struggle at some level. I was just listening to the song just right before coming up here and, and the, the, the line in that song that I just was gripped by is, the line that says, I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. I wonder how many of us lied when we sang that. Are we truly satisfied in Christ alone? Friends, the reality we face as fallen people is that contentment is one of the most challenging virtues to attain. In fact, all the way back to 1648, one of the Puritans, his name is Jeremiah Burroughs, he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Like a rare jewel, contentment is hard to find. But... When it is found, it is invaluable, and you will not want to replace it. Friends, while contentment is in fact a rare reality, it is something we are called to pursue. We find clear commands in the Bible. For example, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse five, the writer of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That's pretty straightforward. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. A little qualifier there. It's good to grow in godliness. It's good to grow in righteousness. But Paul says to Timothy, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now, you might be thinking this morning to yourself, Pastor Adam, it's great to consider the topic of contentment, but aren't you doing a series on generosity? 
I'm not confused this morning, although most days I can be. We most certainly are doing a series on generosity, but listen, here's the issue. We will not be a generous people unless we are a content people. This is one of the things that I think is important for us as we seek to grow in our generosity as we seek to grow in applying our generosity towards others, we must be a people who find our satisfaction and our contentment ultimately and fully in Jesus Christ. You will not be generous unless you are content in Christ. The more you find yourself discontent or coveting other things, other people, the less you will be generous. And so it is imperative for us to pursue a life of contentment to the glory of God, that we find him as the most satisfying treasure in our life for his honor and for his glory first and foremost. But we must pursue a life of contentment also if we are going to be effective stewards as the people of God, generous stewards. So in light of all of that, it would do well for us to consider the topic of contentment today from an often cited passage found here in Philippians chapter four, verse 10 through 13. Let's read this together. This is Paul writing to the church at Philippi under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi from prison. Paul's in prison when he writes this. He's writing to them to encourage them. Philipp, the, the church at Philippi was one of the churches Paul helped get started, helped plant this church. And it was one of his, if we could say this, it was one of his favorite churches. Uh, they didn't give him too much of a problem, per se. Uh, they did have issues, but not to the extent of other churches. And so when he's writing to them, he's writing to just encourage them and to thank them for sending him a gift. Apparently they had been generous towards him and he's just wanting to acknowledge their gift. We see that here in these particular verses. But as he writes to thank them, he just wants to encourage them. That's what really Philippians is about. And so after seeking to encourage them and to exhort them for four chapters. He now, here in verses 10 through 13, specifically thanks them for their gift. For their gift, we find that here. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that I outlink you have revived your concern for me. They sent him this gift through Epaphroditus. And so as he says this to them after he encourages them and after he specifically thanks them for this gift, he also wants them to know that even though he's, ama he's amazed, he's thankful for this generosity on behalf of the Philippians, he wants them to know that he is a content man. He's not, he's not receiving this gift because he begged and pleaded for this help from them. They were generous and gave to him, but he wants them to know how thankful he is, and yet at the same time, how content in Christ he truly is. Even though he's faced all these hardships, 
We're told here that he had learned to grow content. And by his example, by just him referring to his own place and his own, his own contentment that's, that's abounding in his own heart, he's instructing us. He's instructing us by his example. We're told oftentimes that we are to learn from the example of others, that we are to, that we are to follow the example of other believers. And so we find that even here through the example of Paul. And so as we consider the topic of contentment today, as we look at this topic of contentment exemplified in the life of Paul, we want to make several observations. And here they are, let me give them to you up front. Number one, we want to look at contentment rightly established, contentment rightly established, two, contentment rightly developed, and three, contentment rightly applied. Rightly established, rightly developed, rightly applied. Let's look at number one, contentment rightly established, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you Philippians have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. I want you to notice something here in verse 10. Paul acknowledges the care and concern that the Philippians had for him. Apparently there had been a season of time, we're not exactly sure why there had been no contact with the Philippians and Paul. Could be many reasons for this, but there had been a period of time where the church at Philippi and Paul had had little to no contact. And they had now grown aware of his circumstances in prison and they wanted to seek to, after a period of time of silence between the two, to encourage him through giving him a gift. He says, hey, I'm grateful for this. He said, uh, you, you, you're concerned for me and you've had no opportunity to express this concern until now. But notice, verse 10, what he says first. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord. He does not say, I rejoiced in the Philippians. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He's not rejoicing in the generosity of the Philippians first. He's thankful for that. He is rejoicing in the Lord. God, Paul had a God-centered perspective of, of provision in his life. He planted this church some 10 years prior and they had continued to minister to him throughout his, his work throughout Macedonia, but now there's this period of time where they had no contact and now they're seeking to encourage him. You see, Paul was not concerned about his status or about his state or about his situation. He wasn't that concerned about the, the lack of contact between he and the Philippian church because he ultimately knew that God's timing and God's plans were totally sufficient. He acknowledges that here. Listen, I'm grateful that you've revived your concern. You've not had any opportunity to do that until now. And he's saying that, rejoicing in the Lord, acknowledging the fact that God is the one who's caring for him. And in God's way and in God's timing, he's going to do so through, in this, in this case, the Philippians. Paul is the same one that penned Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Ephesians chapter one, verse 11, Paul says this to the church at Ephesus. He says, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. Paul knew that. He knew that God worked everything out to the counsel of his own will and in God's way and in God's time, God would supply. See, Paul had a high view, I would say a right view, 
high view, a right view, a biblical view of God's sovereignty. In fact, that he is a God who has providential control over every aspect of his creation. There are no accidents when there is a sovereign creator. I love what Calvin, John Calvin once wrote, he said this. He said, when the light of divine providence has once shone upon a godly man, he is then relieved and set free, not only from the extreme anxiety and fear that were pressing him before, but from every care. And get this line right here. Ignorance of providence is the ultimate misery. Ignorance of providence is the ultimate misery. The highest blessedness lies in knowing it. I would agree with Calvin there when, when we grow ignorant or we're not as aware as we ought to be of the fact that God is in control and God is at, at work in providential ways unknown to us many times, most times, to be ignorant of that is the ultimate misery. But to understand the fact that God has our back, that God has this world in his hands, that he's working everything out with perfection, by the way, to the counsel of his own will, that there is absolute confidence, absolute certainty that we can trust him. Listen, you will not be content unless you believe God is sovereign. You will not. You will not be content. You will not have true, lasting satisfaction, lasting contentment, unless you believe that God is absolutely sovereign over your life and is working everything out for the counsel of his own will and for your own good to his glory. You will not be content unless you believe God is sovereign. So, contentment rightly established means that we must first have a high view of God, we must first have a right view of God, believing that he is in control and believing he's at the helm, that he is driving us, that he is caring for us and doing everything that we need at the right time, in the right way, for his purposes, to his glory. Contentment rightly established. Two, contentment rightly developed. Look at with me at verses 11 and 12. Notice that Paul says this. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. I mean, just think about this. Paul's in jail. He's in prison. He doesn't have HDTV with, with 24 channels. And this is not a good kind of situation he's in. He, this is prison. He's in prison. And he's saying, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned, I have learned, he says, in whatever situation I am, to be content. The word content here is me, means to have enough, to not ultimately be dependent upon another, humanly speaking. The word content just simply means to have enough. Paul says, I've, I have enough. I've learned to have enough in life, no matter my circumstances. In what, and that's exactly what he's saying. His contentment was not based upon his circumstances. His contentment was not based at all upon his circumstances. Rather, his contentment was based upon his own heart's perspective, his understanding of who God was, his understanding of how he should see his own life, his own identity in Christ. This is his means of contentment. Looking at the website of the Gospel Coalition the other day, and I found a, an article entitled, Is Contentment a Lost Art? Is Contentment a Lost Art? And there in this article, Eric Raymond says this. He said, contentment is achieved 
not by changing our circumstances, but by changing our desires. Contentment is not achieved by changing our circumstances, but by changing our desires. We have all been guilty, he says, of wishing our circumstances were better. But how many of us have complained that our hearts were not better? Contentment is not circumstantial. It's not based upon your circumstances. Friend, if you are depending upon circumstances to make you satisfied, if you are dependent upon circumstances to make you content, you will continue to be miserable. If you are dependent upon a certain relationship to make you happy, you will not ultimately find contentment. If you are dependent upon some kind of education or some kind of certain position or job or anything else other than Jesus, you will never find yourself truly content as God has called you to be. In that book written in 1648, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs defined contentment as this. He said, contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It's that submission, the sweet, gentle, uh, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to not just submits to, but delights in, submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition, every circumstance, every situation, understanding that God is our Father, that He is wise, far wiser than we are, and He is taking care of our every need. Friend, if you are depending on circumstances to bring you contentment, you should understand you should understand that this will never come through circumstances, but you should not undervalue your circumstances. We, we don't need to, sometimes I think when we try to, to move away from an unhealthy perspective, we sometimes swing the pendulum too far and, and get unhealthy on this end. So we need to be aware that while contentment is not based upon circumstances, our circumstances are important. We shouldn't undervalue them. What I mean by that is while circumstances cannot produce contentment, they are used of God to teach contentment. You hear what Paul's saying? He says, for I have learned, he says actually twice here that he's learned contentment. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In every, any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul says that it was through these circumstances, whether he was thriving or whether he was struggling, whether he was abounding or whether he was down, whether he was hungry or whether he had plenty, through these circumstances, he learned to grow content. So while circumstances can't cause contentment, they can teach you contentment because what they will do is they will drive you to the one who can bring true and lasting contentment. So don't undervalue your circumstances. Don't ignore your circumstances. Don't think that they're useless circumstances. 
Paul faced a variety of these circumstances and they were not wasted moments. Your circumstances are not wasted moments. Whether you're abounding or whether you're struggling or whether you're in between, all of life's circumstances are important and designed by God to bring you to where you need to be. We're not wasted moments. It was through these moments that, God, that, that Paul, by the grace of God, learned contentment. Now listen, contentment does not come automatically, does it? I mean, even when you become a Christian, do you just immediately become content? Perfectly satisfied, totally content. Did that happen to you? Please, if it did, tell me because I need to figure something out. I wanna know how that happened. You know, it doesn't come automatically. And, and Paul certainly didn't just immediately be, he wasn't like just automatically content. And we, ne- we didn't even remember. Paul was writing this very letter referring to his own contentment, not from some plush palace, but from prison. He wasn't typing all of this out on his newest iPad poolside while he had beautiful women fanning him with palm branches. That's not the setting that we have here with, with Paul. Contentment does not come automatically. We must learn it. And even in our moments of pain and struggle and trial, these are not wasted moments. If God is sovereign, and he is, these are moments for you and for me to be molded into the likeness of Christ and for us to learn contentment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says there, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you hear that? This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us, preparing for us, it's, it's, a, it's a preparation. Slight momentary afflictions are preparing for us. Are they, they prepare us for glory. They, they prepare us for something beyond what we could even fathom or think. James, we're gonna be looking at James later this fall. James says in chapter one, verses two through four, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Be joyful, be joyful when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So again, James is reminding us that that it's through hardship, it's often through hardship, often through difficulty, often through trials that we're being made and, and conformed into the image of Christ. It's preparing us, it's transforming us. So remember, It's not the circumstances themselves that bring contentment, that produce contentment, that cause contentment, but they teach us contentment. A better job, a better spouse, a better house, a car, a better city or community to live in, listen, will not make you content. It will not. You can say, I just had this, if I just lived here, if I just went there, if I just did that, or if I just did this, if I just had this, it would just make me better. Wrong. Only Jesus can do that. Only Christ can satisfy you in a lasting way. And by the way, when you get that better job, when you get that better degree, when you get that better circumstance or you move to that better place, oftentimes that better whatever it is brings much more difficulty into your life than you did not realize. 
In fact, what happens when we crave for more things is it only fuels our desire for more things. If you're dependent upon things to make you happy, you will never have enough things. So contentment is not about changing your circumstances, ultimately. Contentment is about being satisfied in God and what he's provided you in the midst of whatever circumstances you find yourself in. Think about this. What is it that you have told yourself you really need in order to be happy? Think about that. You've told yourself this. Maybe not officially, but you've thought about it. You've thought, man, if I could just, if I could just have this, it would be so well with my soul. If I could just have this, this thing, this position, this relationship, if I could just have this object, if I could just have this, I would be so happy. What is that? Listen, if that thing, whatever that is for you, is anything other than Jesus, it is idolatry. If that's your heart, if you're craving something that you just can't live without and that you must have this in order to be happy, that's, that's ultimately an idolatrous heart if that is not Christ that you're seeking. Listen, the more discontent we grow, the more self-centered we reveal ourselves truly to be. And no one who is discontent with what they have, provided by the Lord, by the way, will never be in a position to give generously to others. If you're always just seeking further happiness and further contentment in things, you're never gonna be in a good position, in a healthy position to be generous to others because you're not thinking about others, you're just thinking about you. You're thinking about how you can be happy and how you can have more and how you can be at a place in life that is good. Christians, by the grace of God, you must fight against the tendency to live in a discontent state. Because as sinners, that's what we're going to be, that's what we're going to be pursuing. We're not going to, on our own, in our own strength, you, you don't have it within you by yourself to just muster up a content heart. You have it in you to be entirely selfish. No problem there. But only by the grace of God and only filled by the Spirit of God can you truly find yourself content in Christ. Quit depending on your circumstances to bring you joy and happiness and contentment. But friend, look to the one, look to the one who has given you everything, everything you need that you could ever need, that you could ever want, and he's done so through Christ. Friends, maybe you're here today and you would not consider yourself a Christian, and you too realize that you're not content always. The only way that you and I, Christian or not, will find true joy, true lasting satisfaction is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, to realize that outside of Christ we are sinful, that we deserve God's right, righteous judgment upon us, 
that we have rebelled against our good creator, that we have sought our own way, that we want to do things our way in our time for ourselves. that we have rebelled against him and his commands. Because of that, we deserve to be punished by him. We deserve to be judged by him. But God is so generous, he's so kind, he's so gracious, because he said, I'm not going to leave them that way, although they would be justly condemned to be that way and, and be separated from me forever. Rather, I'm going to provide for them a savior. I'm going to provide a savior. I'm gonna send my own son into this world to meet the law's demands on their behalf, to be the one who obeys perfectly, but yet dies a death for sinners so that anyone who would place their hope in Christ would be forgiven of all their sin and welcomed into the kingdom of God forever and have everything you ever need. And if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never placed your faith in him, what's holding you back? More information, more meditation, more wrestling with, I don't know if I can let go of my things, I don't know if I can let go of, 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 of ruling my own life. What's holding you back? Christ has paid everything for you. He's given you everything you could ever need. Trust in him, ask him to come into your life, to be your savior and Lord, to, to yield your life to him. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Only in Christ will you find lasting joy, lasting satisfaction, lasting contentment. Contentment rightly developed. See, we have to understand it's not based upon our circumstances. It's based upon Christ and him alone. And last, number three, contentment rightly applied. In verse 13, we have a very familiar verse to many people. It says, I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Doubt anybody in the room has not heard this verse. Maybe you have, haven't heard this verse. Maybe you haven't. But it's pretty common, it's pretty popular. It's one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. One of the most quoted verses in the Bible and at the same time, one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in the Bible. Most of the time, people like to take this verse, lift it right out of its context, apply it to a bumper sticker or a t-shirt and think that they're now some superhuman warrior that can do anything because they've been zapped with Christ's power. It's usually how it's applied. And it's not a right application of this verse. We, we often use this as some kind of Christian guarantee for success. Or some have said this, it's like, an American, it's like the American dream with a Christian twist. After all, we're basically told in our culture that we can accomplish anything that we want to as long as we work hard enough. And if you apply Philippians 4.13 to that, that, that almost confirms that we can do anything that we want to, anytime we want to, and that we will be totally successful in seeking that. Here's the problem with that approach. One, I'm not sure that the American dream is something that we ought to ultimately pursue. That's another side conversation, maybe several sermons another day. And, and what I mean by that is that the American dream often teaches us that to be successful, we have to somehow reach and maintain this nice, comfortable standard of living defined by whoever. So that's kind of the American dream, that we have to sort of be successful, reach some kind of standard of living, maintain that standard of living, and then we've reached the American dream. 
slap Philippians 4.13 to that and we can Christianize it. So problem number one, I'm not sure that American, the American dream defined by our culture, defined by our world is something that we are ultimately called to pursue. I'm not saying that we can't benefit from certain good things. I'll get to that in a minute. But even more importantly, it's not what Philippians 4.13 means. It's not a verse to motivate you to a high paying career or to score more touchdowns. It's not one of those verses you wanna put football players, you know, Remember Tim Tebow used to have Philippians 4.13 right here. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe the games he lost, he didn't quite apply that verse. I don't know. Be careful, friends, with the Bible. Be so careful. One writer wrote this, referring to this verse. It's often used as a blank check promise for whatever is desired. But in context, It's not about your dreams coming true or your goals being met. Rather, it's about being joyful, satisfied, and steadfast, even when life is hard and your circumstances seem impossible. Big difference. Notice the context. Notice the context. Notice what Paul is saying here. He has said, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then right after that comes this verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the all things I can do all things. The all things is actually a reference to any and every circumstance, the facing of plenty, the facing of hunger. So all Paul is saying here is that I can do all things. I can live content in any circumstance. That's what the application of Philippians 4.13 means. I can be satisfied in Christ no matter my circumstances. It's a big difference than kind of a blank check promise to, for God to bless you in whatever it is that you desire. Big difference. So again, all he's saying here is that he can face whatever circumstance he comes, comes his way, the good, the bad, anything in between with the utmost confidence and contentment that God will provide for all of his needs. That's what Philippians 4.13 means. And so what this verse teaches us is that we can live well We can live well, no matter the circumstances you find yourself in. So if you're at a moment where you're you're just struggling, if we would apply Philippians 4, if you hear somebody applying Philippians 4.13 in this wishful thinking kind of way, it's gonna only cause you more suffering. If you're seeking to be faithful to God and yet you're suffering tremendously, someone who's quoting Philippians 4.13 out of its context is going to annoy you and make you feel all the more guilty. But rather, that verse is for you in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that difficulty that you can be content in Christ. You can do everything, meaning you can face any circumstance that God brings your way with absolute contentment in Him. And I'd be so careful with the scriptures. Again, we're not saying contentment is only available if you get your circumstances better. It's not at all what we're saying. So whether you live in the, in the favelas, the slums of Rio de Janeiro, and I've been to the slums of Rio de Janeiro, some of the, the most uh, violent, 
places, in, one of the most violent places in the, on the planet. There are many of those kinds of places. Um, crime, uh, hardship, poverty. And some of the believers that I met there are some of the happiest, satisfied, joyful people you'll ever meet. And their whole house could fit in some of our bedrooms. It's not based upon circumstances. So whether somebody lives in the slums of Rio, whether someone lives in the far reaches of Afghanistan or right here in plush St. Mary's County, Philippians 4.13 can be true. For those who have the right perspective and are seeking Christ, their contentment in him, because contentment can only be found in him, not in our circumstances and not even in our location. So there's a danger to misapply what we're talking about here. But there's a danger we also need to realize when we're pursuing contentment, because if we're not careful, remember, we could overcompensate for, for where we've maybe failed before. Okay, I'm not to pursue contentment in life circumstances, so forget my circumstances. If we're not careful, we can believe that, okay, I just need to deal with whatever comes my way. I just need to kind of buck up, get, get over it, and just deal with life. Well, what this, it's not saying that, that you need to be satisfied with your circumstances regardless. If we're not careful, we can be led to believe that contentment in this understanding of contentment means that we must be satisfied with our circumstances no matter what, and we shouldn't work at improving our situation. That's not what this text is saying. Not at all is Paul saying you should not improve your circumstances. In fact, Paul lived through a variety of different circumstances. Do you think that if Paul had the ability to get out of prison that he wouldn't? Again, does this mean that the call of contentment say that we should not pursue better living? That we should not pursue a better job? That we should not pursue better education? That we should somehow feel guilty for having a higher income or a nicer home? No, it's not what this text is saying. If you have those opportunities to, to grow in, in education, if you have those opportunities to grow and better your situation, to better your, your life, I think by the grace of God, we should do that in appropriate ways for the glory of God so we can be generous. This is not a call to some kind of poverty theology that can often be prevalent, even in some of our good evangelical writers. So we have to be careful that we don't overcompensate and and and. and move to this other unhealthy view. All we're saying is the call to contentment is, is not a call to be complacent, to be satisfied or, or to be, it's not a call to just be complacent. Okay, I've got, this is my circumstance in life, this is where I'm gonna stay. I'm just gonna deal with it. May have these opportunities to get myself a better job, a better education, but I'm just gonna deal with it, this is what I've got. It's not saying that, nor is it saying that you should make idols out of your job, out of your family, out of where, when, where you live and where you're located. See, it's not either of those. It's not a call to be complacent or lazy, nor is it a call to make our salaries and educations idols. It's simply a call to be satisfied with God's provision by his grace, by his grace in your life, no matter the circumstance you are in at any moment. It might be times of plenty and abundance or it might be times of need and hunger. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
I can do the plenty, I can do the hunger. I can do the abundance, I can do the struggle. Because Christ is my all. Friends, we have many temptations. We have many circumstances that we could apply this to. Friends, understand that all we're being commanded, com commanded and commanded to do here is to find our satisfaction in Christ who strengthens us. It's only available in Christ. So, as you seek to find your greatest joy and satisfaction and contentment in life, you must seek it in Christ and not circumstances. Contentment leads when we, when we find ourselves where Paul was, when we find ourselves content in Christ, it leads us to action, but it leads us to the right kind of action. True godly contentment is indeed a rare jewel. I've met very few people who are and I don't know that there is anyone that's perfectly content, but I've met very few people that, that seem content with everything in their life. It's a rare jewel, but listen, by the grace of God, it's not impossible. Contentment is not impossible. It's not one of those things where I'm never gonna be content, might as well not die trying. No, Paul said he had learned contentment. And even in those moments in prison, I'm sure that there was struggle in, in Paul's own heart where he was challenged in his faith, challenged in his commitment. There's no shortcut to commit contentment. But listen, it will be produced, it will be learned by the Lord, by, produced by the Lord as you walk with the Lord through all of life's circumstances. Not a moment is wasted. Not one moment is wasted. Understanding his character and understanding the view that, that the view of life that transcends your circumstances is indeed where you must begin. God is sovereign. Circumstances are secondary. They're not ultimate. They are important that they teach me. They're not ultimate. So your goal, friend, listen, is not to change your circumstances to seek contentment. God has you where you are. He has you where you are. He's at work in your life, producing in you what only he can produce. So we need to grow satisfied in him and learn contentment. Friend, you might struggle with contentment, but praise God, we have a God who does not desire for us to remain as we are. Again, to quote Jeremiah Burroughs as we close. He said, I find I find a sufficiency of satisfaction in my own heart through the grace of Christ that is in me. Though I have not outward comforts and world conveniences to supply my necessities, yet I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. Friend, can you say that? Can you say that you have a sufficient portion between Christ and your soul that will abundantly satisfy you in every condition. And remember, only when you grow to that point are you going to be useful 
in generosity towards others. Friends, we must grow content, not ultimately for our own sake. We must grow content for God's glory and even for the good of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and how you have revealed truth for us to expose us, to show us our, our failures and our struggles. And Father, you, you, you've, you've given your word like a knife, like a scalpel that, that, that does surgery on our souls. And Lord, today I pray that not only would we find truth concerning this issue of contentment. Lord, my desire, my prayer is that for all of us, myself included, that, that we would not just see contentment as something that we can define. Contentment as something that we can describe to others. Lord, my concern is not that we know the right things, but Father, that we would know them, that we might live them. God, that Contentment would not just be something that we speak of, but Lord, contentment would be something that we live. That we would realize that everything that we have has been given to us by you. Everything that we have is, is yours. God, would you help us to grow content in you? Forgive us, Lord, where we have sought to find contentment in circumstances, contentment in relationships, contentment in in our, in our employment, where we've tried to find true and lasting happiness and, and other things. Father, would you teach us contentment? Would you help us to see our own hearts for what they truly are and find our joy and our satisfaction?